So, this evening I'd like to offer some reflections on the Four Noble Truths. It seems to me that this is a very useful way to respond to the question, why practice? Why engage in meditation? Why engage in all this sitting and walking? And at the end of this day, as many of us have discovered, sometimes this can be a difficult thing to do. It's certainly not always easy. So why do we put ourselves through it? And there are all these wonderful range of other things we could be doing. Why have we chosen to engage in this particular form? Sitting and walking and silence. And the Buddha was very, very clear about the purpose of his teaching. He said, I teach suffering and end of suffering. So really that's what our practice here today, our practice over this weekend, is in the service of, it's in the service of ending suffering. Ending suffering in our lives, ending suffering in the lives of those with whom we come into to contact. So it's a deeply compassionate thing to do. Compassionate for ourselves, compassionate for others. And the Buddha's teaching on the Four Noble Truths is absolutely at the heart of, of his teaching. The truth of suffering, the truth of the origin of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, and the truth of the path leading to the end of suffering. Just to say a few words about uh, the attitude that we can have as we hear this teaching. Some uh, meditation teachers use a phrase which I, I really love, which is, I offer these thoughts for your reflection. I offer these thoughts for your reflection. And I really appreciate this phrase because, first of all, the sense of offering gives a sense of generosity. So the teaching uh, is not supposed to be an imposition, it's not something you have to believe, it's not something that is being forced upon you. It's an offering, it's, some, it's a gift. A sense of generosity. And also for your reflection, for your reflection, which gives a wonderful sense of autonomy. It's not truths that you have to accept you have to decide here and now, do I agree with that, not agree with that, I like that bit, not that bit. But they're tools for reflection, they're things to use in our lives. <coughs> do I suffer? Why do I suffer? What are the origins of my suffering? Is there a way out? It's a reflection for us all. So these uh, Four Noble Truths are something that we can turn over in our minds, something we can use in our lives. Four Noble Truths are said to be the, one of the very first teachings that the Buddha gave to his former companions. 
And some of you may know that the Buddha grew up in a situation of great luxury. and could have anything he wanted. And his father made sure that he was shielded from all the unpleasantness of life, all the difficulties. And from that background of luxury, one day the Buddha came across what are said to be the Four Sights. She's a, an old person, a sick person, a corpse, a dead person, and uh, a holy person, someone trying to look deeply into life and find a response to the problem of, of birth and death. And from his life of luxury, the Buddha then uh, left home and went forth and tried all kinds of practices, some of which were very uh, difficult, ascetic practices. So, hardly eating any food is one of the things that he did. So he's said to have become so, uh, so skinny, really, that you could actually touch his spine through his belly. So really trying to mortify the body, trying to let go of uh, looking after what the body needs. Because if the luxury, if pandering to the body all the time hadn't brought the end of suffering, the Buddha, in a way, went to the other extreme, trying to mortify the body, trying to deny the body, and therefore be released from suffering. And what he found was that neither of these ways worked. Neither of these ways led to the freedom and deliverance which he was seeking. So neither the luxury nor the mortification, nor the denial of the body. And the Four Noble Truths are a teaching on the middle way between those two extremes, between luxury and denial. So the first truth is the truth of suffering, or in the Pali word, dukkha, dukkha. And this is a word that has a whole range of different meanings from, on the one hand, very uh, extreme physical suffering, so the suffering associated with extreme sickness and suffering associated with dying. And on the other extreme, a sense of unsatisfactoriness, a sense of not being at ease, a sense of something not quite being complete. And even in our happiest times, even in our good times, there might be just a slight subtle sense of, ah, oh, this is going to fade. If only this could stay forever. Even that very sense of dukkha, that very sense of suffering. And the way that uh, suffering can pervade our lives, I think, is uh, something I've seen from actually a sitcom I used to watch. I don't know if you've ever seen it. There used to be a sitcom called Terry and June. <laughs> and uh, this is quite a dated program now, I guess, but it's a sort of wonderful suburban kind of sitcom. And these middle-aged couple that live together, in many ways, have what you would see as an ideal life. Lovely, semi-detached house, and he's got a good job, and she's around for him, and some sort of basic loving relationship they've got between them. And yet at the beginning of every program, they would show Terry trying to set up a nice little situation for himself. It was usually about having a kind of 
some sort of deck chair in the garden and like, he'd have his drink there next to him and a little umbrella to stop the sun getting on him. And what Terry was trying to do was create a situation where everything was okay. Yeah? My chair is nice and relaxed. The drink is just there, not too much sugar, just the, the right kind of oranges, I like it. And the weather's nice and everything's okay. And yet, the joke in the program is at the beginning of every, uh, every program, something else would go wrong. So poor old Terry, sometimes he'd sit there and he'd sit on this uh, uh, wonderful deck chair and it would just collapse. Sometimes, um, you know, perhaps he'd knock over the drink or just as he was about to settle in, suddenly the heavens would open and it would start pouring with rain or perhaps June would come in and say, ah, oh, so Dennis is on the phone. So Dennis was his somewhat demanding boss. And Terry's attempt to create this life where everything was as he wanted it to be kept being frustrated. And I just wonder whether our lives are a little bit like that sometimes. We try to set up circumstances, conditions to suit us. Yeah, I've got the job that I wanted. I've got the relationship that I wanted. I've got the living situation that I wanted. I've got as much money as I wanted. Everything's kind of in place. Sometimes people talk about that, we're trying to spin all these plates. You've got four or five plates that we're trying to spin at the same time to get everything to be okay. But perhaps, like Terry, we discover that life maybe has other plans for us. You know, even if we do find ourselves fortunate enough to somehow get all these plates spinning at the same time, how long is it going to last before one of them wobbles? And this is a, not a teaching to make you depressed. I'm not saying, oh, you know, this is an unequivocally miserable situation. It's just saying if we can recognize that, maybe we can let go of that very project, that very project that says my well-being, my happiness depends upon getting it all right outside myself. And maybe we can start to see the wisdom of being at ease even when things don't go to plan. Reflecting on suffering, reflecting on the truth of suffering is a very skillful thing to do for another reason as well, which is that we all suffer Suffering is universal. It doesn't matter if you're English or Scottish or American or Brazilian, Nigerian, whatever country you're from, this is part of life. It doesn't matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. A fundamental aspect of our condition is being faced with things that we don't want. Wanting things that are not present. And when we reflect on that, we can feel a sense of a common bond with other people. When we start getting into, well, I'm this religion and you're that religion, or I'm from this country, you're from that country, I have this set of beliefs, you have that set of beliefs, we can get quite quickly into division and separation. We feel disconnected from others and we look at others perhaps as very different from us or enemies or perhaps even people we have to fight and get rid of. 
very skillful to reflect, ah, this is someone who suffers like me. This is someone who wishes to be happy just like me. And that very simple reflection can ease some of that division. Suffering is actually said to be something to be understood. Something to be understood. With each of these four truths, there's an instruction that goes with it. The truth of suffering, and this is to be understood. And one of the things we can understand is the impersonal nature of suffering. It's not necessarily just to do with me, it's not mine. But suffering is something that arises somewhat impersonally. So I could give you a little example of this. Uh, some years ago I was uh, traveling in India and part of that experience was, uh, was being someone from uh, Britain and you know, clearly having perhaps more money, clearly being a tourist, that there were lots of people who wanted to perhaps sell me things or get me to use their rickshaw, their taxi, their hotel. And uh, once I'd been there for a few weeks, a few months, um, I found this little bit uh, frustrating, a little bit, little bit uh, tiresome, I guess. So the reflection seems to go like this, oh, you know, why are they doing that? Why can't I be left alone? Uh, why can't I just be peaceful? Why can't uh, I have things my way? So the reflection started then with, uh, as if the people outside of me were somehow the problem. You are irritating, please stop being irritating to me. And then the next thought was, well, hang on, that's a bit unfair. We know that the economic system of the world is certainly not completely just. Here I am, a rich person coming over here, what do I expect? Um, how selfish of me, how ignorant of me, what a bad person I am. <laughs> so, jumping, you see, you can make this jump from blaming what's outside yourself, and then the jump comes to blaming myself, yeah. They shouldn't be doing this, oh no, I shouldn't be doing it. And reflecting on the impersonal nature of suffering is so helpful, and it was such a release to think, actually, Irritation has arisen, this frustration has arisen. There's just no need to get into the blame. Is it your fault, my fault, whose fault it is? It's just part of life that we rub up against things that we don't want. We rub up against things that we wouldn't have chosen to be that way. And what a relief. Yeah, what a relief not having to blame others, not having to blame myself. We can use this uh, first truth, the truth of suffering, as a tool of insight, as a tool for reflection. Just notice in our lives, where do I get stuck? Where does that sense of suffering arise for me? And when the suffering does arise, you can get interested. Oh, what's, what's creating this suffering? What's making this suffering here? And we discussed earlier the kind of sense of looking forward to the burying that we can often experience in meditation. Again, with that type of uh, event, it's quite interesting to think, where is the suffering here? Where does it come from? And in one sense, it's okay, you know, hopefully you're not too hungry, it's not, 
freezing, freezing cold, it's not absolutely boiling hot. Just got to sit here, nothing to do. And yet there can be a sense of uh, suffering, sense of disease, sense of unsatisfactoriness can be there. And it's really interesting as a reflection. Well, why is that? Why is that? It really is something that we you know, can use in our daily lives. I mean, I certainly use it in my job as a college teacher. And uh, like many of you, I'm sure you wake up in the morning, sometimes you don't necessarily uh, absolutely look forward to what's happening that day. And sometimes I can walk into the class thinking, oh, you know, do I want to do this? I'd rather be doing something else. And, and just, just reflecting on that, oh, what's the problem? I'm here. It's not too bad. Okay, some people are doing what I want, some people are not doing what I want, but it's... It's kind of okay in the big scheme of things. I'm lucky enough to be working in a place nobody's trying to physically attack me or anything like that. It's just kind of okay. So it's a lovely tool to have. You know, when we get a bit stuck, when we suffer, just reflect, well, why is it? What am I bringing to this situation to create the suffering, to create the dis-ease? Reflecting on suffering gives us a sense of being able to be free from habitual reactions. Yeah. Habitual reactions to, suff- to suffering is often to immediately try to get rid of it. Yeah, immediately try to get rid of it. And again, like a, a personal example of working in the college, something's not going too well, and immediately the thought comes up, right, got to get another job, got to resign, got to get rid of it, got to do something else. But you can just see, you can reflect that, ah, oh, that's just a, a habitual reaction. That's what occurs when something unpleasant is in our experience, a habitual reaction to push it away. But to turn towards suffering, to understand suffering, gives us a sense of being free from that habit. Yeah, okay, there's something pleasant there. I can be aware of that. Yeah, there's a tendency to want to push it away. I can be aware of that too. And we're not governed by that. We're not driven by that. These habitual forces that keep us spinning, running towards what we like, running away from what we don't like. So suffering is to be understood. And I think it's one of the real paradoxes of meditation practice that when we have the courage, when we have the patience to turn towards what is most difficult in our lives, that's really where we can discover a sense of freedom. Is that, I remember a time in retreat when I was thinking about a, a relative of mine who's quite uh, sick and feeling the sadness of that. And again, you could think, well, sadness is not something that we may want to feel. So again, the habitual reaction might be, right, okay, too sad now to meditate, let's get up and read a book or go and talk to someone or do something else. Just a sense of being with the sadness, feeling it in the body. What's it like to be sad? What's it like to be touched by that emotion? What's it like to really feel it deep down? And actually what I found was a a tremendous relief. 
not having to run away from it. And it seems to me as well that actually underneath the sadness, with the sadness, was actually a sense of love, sense of connection. Turning towards the suffering actually revealed that. And reflected afterwards, when you think about someone that you love who's sick or who's dying, would you really want to just be free from sadness? Oh, such and such a person is ill, well, that's okay, I'm off down the pub to enjoy myself, have fun. I mean, there would be something really, something missing about that. And actually to be touched by something, to be touched by grief, to be touched by mourning, and to really feel it, it's a relief, and it reveals our humanity, it reveals our love, it reveals our connection with one another. It's the wisdom of turning towards suffering. second truth, the second noble truth, is the truth of the origin of suffering. And in Pali, the word is uh, tanha. tanha. And this word can be translated as craving. Yeah. Sometimes also said to be a kind of thirst. Or sometimes more generally as a kind of wanting, a kind of desire. And the uh, said to be three aspects to this craving uh, called karma tanha which is craving for sense pleasures bhava tanha which is craving to become and vibhava tanha which is craving to get rid of craving to push away so the craving for sense pleasures What's that got to do with suffering? I think uh, the first thing to, to say here is really what it's not, what this teaching is not about. And the teaching certainly is not about condemning pleasure. There's absolutely nothing wrong with pleasure whatsoever. There's nothing bad about pleasure, there's nothing sinful about pleasure, there's nothing to be condemned about pleasure, there's nothing to feel guilty about connected with pleasure. It's a normal part of life. But how then can a craving for sense pleasures, what's the connection between that and suffering? It seems to me the key thing here is how do we react when these things are present and how do we react when these things are absent? And the difficulty with sense pleasure is that it can pull us in sometimes. Yeah? Pleasurable experience, let's say I have a really, really nice meal, delicious meal. And then the next day I go to dinner and it's perhaps something a little bit more plain. Now if I've really attached to that sense pleasure of the a wonderful meal I had the day before, there can be a sense of disappointment, sense of frustration, sense of suffering. Because I've invested my happiness, my well-being in that pleasure. And that's when we can be disappointed, because these pleasures come and go, they're not always available, they're impermanent. And you can imagine 
imagine, of course, the pleasures associated with being in relationships. And again, wonderful thing to be in relationships, wonderful thing to make connections with people. But how much pain we can experience when our whole sense of well-being, happiness, almost like everything that makes life okay is invested in that, something that that person gives to me. And the sense of despair and dissolution that we can feel when that's absent. So that's the difficulty with being attached to sense pleasures. Nothing wrong with sense pleasures at all, but if we're attached to them, we can suffer when they're not available. We can chase them. We can miss them. So the teachings point to a sense of contentment, a sense of resting with how things are. And craving for sense pleasures often takes us away from how things are to how we'd like things to be. Now sometimes uh, thinking our celebrity obsessed culture, we can see some quite good examples of this. Some of these celebrities of course who get uh, very rich, fabulously rich, we can see sometimes in the stories of their lives how perhaps a lot of uh, luxury, a lot of sense pleasure can sometimes still make us uh, suffer, sometimes still make us uh, depressed and ill at ease. If you've heard these stories where people have to have everything just a particular way. So, you know, maybe the towels in the hotel room have to be a particular shade or a particular kind of cotton or something like that. And again, it can be, a, I guess, a particular temptation if we become very rich to be even more particular about how we want things. Yes, it's not enough just to have a sort of generally uh, luxurious, a generally okay hotel room, but it's got to be just like this. And that's uh, the problem if we get too caught up in luxury. We get even more specific, even more particular about how the conditions have to be for things to be okay. And conditions are by their very nature unstable. And the more we invest in things being a particular way, or we set ourselves up for disappointment. There's also the craving to become. And we can see that craving to be someone special. I've got to be successful. I've got to have a lot of status. I've got to have a lot of wealth. I've got to somehow be someone important in the world. An awful lot of investment that we can uh, put into those kind of self-images. Those kind of desires can really orientate a life, a life oriented around chasing status and knocking other people out of the way who are getting in our way to achieve that status. And we can also uh, bring this into our spiritual practice, this craving to become. That's something to be aware of, something to watch out for. Maybe we have a sense that we come to meditate because we need to become something else. You know, at the moment, I'm this person with this distracted mind, this busy mind, with all these kind of things I need to get rid of. And if I just do enough meditation, I'll become something. I'll become a new kind of person, a new spiritual kind of person. There's a new kind of spiritual ambition that can get projected onto the practice. a sense of spiritual 
materialism perhaps, there's a sense of wanting something that's not here. And this is again not to denigrate a wonderful aspiration, aspiration to open to things that maybe we don't know yet. Maybe there are things to explore that we haven't experienced. But not from a sense of there's anything missing here and now. What craving tells us is here and now isn't okay. Our practice that we've been engaged in is let's rest here and now. Here and now is enough. Craving tells us here and now is not enough. I need to be someone different. I need to have a pleasure that's not here. Let me find that resting in the here and now as we let go of the craving. And as I said, the noble truths have instructions associated with them and the instruction associated with the second truth is to let go. Craving being the origin of suffering, this craving is to be let go. And the uh, Thai forest meditation master, very famous meditation, Ajahn Shah, put it like this. Let go a little and you'll have a little peace. Let go a lot, and you'll have a lot of peace. Let go completely, and you'll have complete peace. So the third truth, the third noble truth is the end of suffering, the cessation of suffering. And the sense of the end of suffering is that when we recognize that everything that arises ceases, everything that is born dies, everything that comes into being will fade away. Recognizing that. So we're not trying to fix things, we're not trying to make things a certain way, we're not trying to control things so that they conform to our desires. Allowing things to arise and allowing things to cease. And the end of suffering is about an attitude to life that is not attached to things having to work out our way. Being engaged with life, being connected with life, touching life feeling life deeply, but then letting it go. And we can understand the end of suffering on some different levels, I think. And it's really, really helpful to notice in our daily life quite an ordinary sense of the end of suffering. I say ordinary, but also very special, and really something to notice and reflect upon. Uh, Some years ago, with some of my students, we were discussing the nature of happiness, and we were sitting around saying, what makes you happy? What are the things that we need to uh, be happy? Kind of reflection we're having today. I was so struck by the response of one particular student, and she said to me, I really 
I don't know what it is, but sometimes I'm just sitting on the bus and everything's just kind of okay. I don't really want anything. I don't, there's nothing particularly, no reason why I'm happy. I'm just kind of all right. And it's really wonderful and lovely to notice those moments. When that sense of craving falls away, and everything's just okay as it is. Perhaps when we go for a walk sometime, we can be walking in nature and just really being there, experiencing the bird song, being in beautiful woodlands, being uh, just in nice countryside, and sometimes it's just a sense, this is okay, I don't need anything else. And these senses actually can come up, you know, all kinds of times. It's just really, really uh, important and wonderful to reflect, when is that sense of craving absent? When is that sense of being a self who's got to somehow fix and get everything in order? When is it not there? Because if you reflect, actually, it comes and goes. It's something that arises in the moment, ceases in the moment. And just notice those times when it's when it's absent. And uh, within the Buddhist tradition, the sense of the end of suffering also is connected with uh, a vision of completely uprooting defilements in our minds, completely letting go of those things that keep us trapped and stuck, that keep us in a circular way of being wonderful vision, aspiration, sense of possibility is uh, described in the tradition. And again, it's really interesting to feel, well, what does our mind do with that? Because remember, the, the difficulty or the danger is that we get into this bhavatana, wanting to become something. You know, we might have an idea of wanting to become enlightened. And of course, then we can get into that trap again, that there's something missing here and now. I'm not okay as I am. I somehow need to work on myself, fix myself, change myself to become something else. So again, a, a sense of a spiritual teaching could, if held uh, unwisely, reinforce a sense of lack. There's something missing. It's very interesting to just see how we hold that idea. But again, too, it's wonderful to have an aspiration and this path and practice is uh, in some way something that unfolds over time. It's something that we can become more skilled in, like in the same way that we might learn a musical instrument. Nobody becomes a wonderful piano player just immediately. And these things that we're practicing, being present, letting go, being aware, they are things that can even <coughs> deepen over time. So I think kind of living with that paradox, living with that paradox, that sense, yeah, the teaching is pointing to an aspiration, and yet also having a sense that it's also all here and now. There's nothing missing. One of the words for the 
Dharma, the teaching of the Buddha, is a sanditiko, which means apparent here and now. Apparent here and now. And the fourth truth, the truth of the path leading to the end of suffering, This is really a way of life being described here in the path. The Noble Eightfold Path is one description of uh, this fourth truth. It's something to be cultivated. Something to be cultivated. So we can also speak about the path in terms of uh, three aspects, which are sila, samadhi, panya in the Pali, which is ethics, ethical behavior, meditative concentration and wisdom and wise reflection sila samadhi panya and last night we discussed the ethical precepts we discussed that sense of integrity a sense of non-harming sense of not being possessive not being greedy sense of being still and content being truthful and honest and having a clarity of mind, all those different dimensions of ethical practice. And again, just to sense how this is both where we begin and where we end. This sense of ethical behavior really helps us to uh, calm in meditation, it helps us to see clearly. And it's also really the fruit of meditation practice. As I said at the beginning, this is a teaching about suffering in its end. Is the end of suffering going to be embodied? Is it going to be expressed, if not through the way we behave in our daily lives? In many ways we often encourage people not to judge or evaluate their meditation practice in any way, and certainly not by particular content of experience that's arising, but sometimes people do say, well, if there's any way you want to say, well, what is the value of this meditation? You say, well, look at, look at our lives. Look at our lives. Is the practice making us more kind, more honest, more open with others? That's really what it's in the service of. Ethical behavior, both the ground of meditation and its fruits. And the meditation aspect of the path, as we've spoken about today, with these two elements, a sense of calming and collecting the mind, a sense of being stable and focused, a sense of real peace and being collected. A wonderful aspect of uh, meditation practice. But it's also uh, an aspect of meditation practice that tends to be supported by particular conditions. So while we're here on retreat, we're in the silence, as we deepen in the silence, it's easy for the mind to become calm. And as we go out into our daily lives and go back to uh, cities or busy jobs or whatever else we're doing, 
it's not always easy to have that same level of calm and concentration and collectedness that we have in retreat. That's when this second aspect of meditative practice is so useful, this sense of seeing deeply, sense of insight, sense of wise reflection. And that's really what carries over into our lives. Some of the peace, some of the calm, is dependent on conditions. But that willingness to look deeply into life and to meet whatever comes up is independent of conditions. It's something we can bring to every experience, whatever we face in life. And the wise reflection in meditation, the insight in meditation, allows us to see many things, allows us to see that everything that arises ceases, allows us to see the truth of impermanence. And that's really deeply useful for us because if we can recognize that things change, that things shift, that things come and go, we can be a little bit more at ease with it. We're not trying to have everything just how we want it forever. Because it's just not how life is. Recognizing that, allowing things to be, allowing things to fade away. As we see that impermanence of things, we can also see that they're somehow unreliable as a place to try and make a permanent home, a place to try and have as a, a refuge, if we like. This sense of what, what makes life okay? What makes everything okay? What do I need for my well-being? Well, if we answer that question with anything that changes, again, it's an unreliable place to do that. It's like building our house on shifting sand, trying to find somewhere stable, trying to find a home. But if we're building on shifting sand, we're going to be disappointed. So instead, we can feel a sense of refuge in the way it is. Something we can rely upon as a refuge. Our awareness is like this. reflection also can lead us to a sense of connection with each other, a sense of interconnection. And our lives are really not so separate. And it reflects on this in so many ways. Just the very air that we've been breathing, we've been reflecting on the mindfulness of breathing, we've been practicing that particular meditation and we've been sharing this air constantly something coming in, something going out. Just thinking about the food that we've been eating today it connects us with all the people that grew the food, it connects us with the sunshine that was necessary for the vegetables to grow and develop, it connects us with all the people who transported the food here, the managers who so beautifully prepared the food. And actually there's no limit. When we 
we start reflecting on connection, it just gets wider and wider and wider, this sense of a net of interconnection. And that's really the fruit of reflecting on these Four Noble Truths, a sense of connection, and therefore a sense of compassionate response, a sense of, <coughs> a sense of we're all in it together. So we're all in it together. It was wonderful to share time with uh, many of you in the groups today, and we're all saying, well, yeah, I get this in my mind, and oh, yeah, my mind does that as well. And my mind does this and gets caught over here, and oh, yes, that happens to me as well. In a sense, reflecting on suffering, its origin, its end, the path leading to its end, really gives us a sense of our common situation, our common humanity, a sense of what we share. I'd just like to finish with a reading from a senior meditation teacher, Jack Cornfield who describes this sense of interconnection. In widening our circle of practice, we learn the art of honouring life in each encounter, moment by moment, and person by person. This is not an idealistic practice, but an immediate one. Living a spiritual life does not demand high ideals or noble thoughts. It requires our caring and kind attention to our breath, to our children, to the trees around us, and to the earth with which we are so interconnected. So if we just sit, sit quietly for a couple of minutes together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.